Hi, welcome to Maverick Mindcast. My guest today is James Corbett. He is a podcaster, documentary filmmaker, journalist, and creator of The Corbett Report. Welcome, James. How are you? I'm doing all right. Thank you for having me on. Thanks for being here. I was I had a few other questions I was going to ask, but being that this is breaking news, I, I'm dying to get your take on Elon Musk uh, purchasing Twitter. Uh, I, I guess my uh, my response would be, uh, am I allowed to not care? <laughs> because I know everyone is very excited about this, but I am I couldn't care less either way because I don't like to Twitter. I don't use Twitter. I don't endorse Twitter. I don't want to give my time, energy, or attention to Twitter. I have nothing to do with Twitter. I don't get my news from Twitter. I don't think other people should get their news from Twitter. And I think Twitter could disappear off the face of the earth tomorrow, and I wouldn't notice or care. So <laughs> I don't care who owns Twitter or what it's going to do about free speech, quote unquote, on the internet, because it is a controlled platform that is centralized and is controlled by whoever happens to be owning it. Oh, Elon Musk owns it now, and he's going to use it to promote transhumanism and Tesla. Yay. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> well, we share the same views. So I just I just kind of was asking more from a conspiratorial perspective, mm. because I just really feel, and I want to get your take on this, um, you know, here's my thing. In a world where we have the World Wide Web and we have so much access to information, unlimited access, as a matter of fact, we're barraged with it every day. I still feel like majority of society is clueless. Yeah. And I always wonder why. Okay. Okay. Here's the conspiratorial take. The real conspiracy with regards to Twitter and the news about it and people paying attention to it is the direction of your attention towards Twitter. Um, Because the fundamental psyop that has taken place over the past two decades is that the internet is Twitter. The internet is Google. The internet is Instagram. The internet is these controlled centralized platforms. That's what the internet is, right? And unfortunately, that has been such an incredibly effective psyop that it uh, it has made people completely and totally forget what the internet was or was supposed to be about or could be about to the point where they obsess about who happens to be owning Twitter um, this week. That is the fundamental psyop that's going on here. And we have to understand that the power of free speech and communication on decentralized platforms that we could be constructing ourselves is an incredible power. It is the power that was so threatening to the power structure that they had to invent Facebook and Google and and Twitter and all of these other controlled platforms in order to suppress that. And one thing I don't know about Jack Dorsey and, you know, who he is and his background and all of that, but I do know that he said something recently that was exactly true. Centralization of uh, discovery and identity in, in corporate platforms was a wrong turn for the internet. It has done more to, to hinder the internet than anything else. And he was exactly right about that because yes, now everyone is defined by their Twitter handle and their Facebook feed and all of these other controlled uh, identities. That is the fundamental psyop that's taking place here. So Elon Musk, I know everyone gets so excited about Elon. He's such a cool billionaire. No. He is playing. He is a fundamental part of this game, and I'm not going to give my time, energy, or attention to it. Yeah, I totally agree. I this kind of more segue into this hero complex that I feel like our society has, where we're in trouble and we're looking whether it's Trump, whether it's Elon Musk, um, even just the clueless aspect too. Is like when you ask people about the World Economic Forum, and they they have no clue that you know they're openly saying you'll own nothing and you'll be really happy about it. Um, So when you have so much information out there that it could take five seconds to find this kind of stuff, you can just look up Elon Musk and see so many of the things that he's doing that run counter to, you know, freeing humanity and increasing the population and things like that. Um, Yet people just seem to not even the even the alternative media, which I wanted to get your take on that as well. I'm pretty astounded by how much of the alternative media is clinging to this is, you know, glorifying this, is saying this has so much, this is so much bigger than Twitter, which I totally disagree with. Um, and just how how it's kind of hard to escape this way of thinking, even when you think you're yeah. in an alternative environment where you're getting yeah. the real 
the real scoop or the real insights into what's really going on. Right, right. It's the hero complex. It's the leader complex. It's the big man on the white horse is going to ride in and save the day complex. That is, uh, uh, as people often point out, oh, it's just part of, it's how humans work. You'll never escape that. I full hard, full heartedly, full throatedly reject that. I do not agree with that. We do not need this Messiah savior complex that has been drilled into the population, which fundamentally comes from a space of disempowerment. You are a weak, powerless individual. Your entire lot in life is to sit there and wait until some great man comes along and buys Twitter or whatever else, whatever the meme of the week is, that's going to totally save you guys. And, uh, and all they have to do is get you distracted from your own power and your own ability to create things in your own way, using your own resources. If they can get you distracted and, and distanced from that and always fixated on some other person who's going to do something at some point and just enjoy the show, grab your popcorn, all the other QAnon nonsense that uh, we've been subjected to in the alternative media for the last five years. then it's mission accomplished for them. So that's the fundamental. And I suppose another way, if you want to get into it, the way that this Twitter thing could play out is that it feeds into the hands of those who are seeking to regulate speech online anyway, because now, uh uh-oh, oh no, Elon Musk and oh, free speech on Twitter and oh, well, we need to increase. I mean, as much as they were drilling Zuckerberg and Dorsey and people like that in Congress, can you imagine Elon Musk being hauled before Congress and the political grandstanding that would go along with that exactly playing into the agenda to give uh, governments more power to regulate speech online. And as I've been pointing out for years and years, the big tech platforms want to be thrown into that briar patch. Oh, please don't cement our monopoly into place by making these types of rules, restrictions, regulations, and compliance orders that are completely unfeasible for any startup to ever do. Some some Twitter alternative platform that's starting up today will never have the regulation and compliance officers and the lawyers and the teams of people and programmers and coders to jump through the regulation hoops. But Twitter does, Facebook does, Google does. They're happy to to be regulated in such a way. And that's unfortunately, again, that 99 people out of 100 can't even begin to grasp, can't even get their heads around. How can we change that? Do you be- Are you optimistic that there's a way people can finally break out of this mold of, of thought of just deferring to it? Here, kitty, kitty, here, kitty, kitty, you know? Yeah. Well, yes. I mean, I know it's possible. Um, uh, I, I, it, this, sounds, this sounds egotistical. It is not meant from that perspective, but I I snapped out of the illusions that I was living under 15 years ago when I took the political spectacle and sideshow and the daily news at face value more or less. Uh, I I have tumbled down that rabbit hole and seen reality. And I really do think once you do start to get a grasp of that, um, it's, it's, if not impossible, it's extremely unlikely that you'll go back to just simply accepting everything that you read in the newspaper at face value again. It's hard to do that. Um, That is not to say I have reached the final level of awareness and I know all and I'm floating on a cloud. Of course not. But at the very least, I've seen through the absolute ridiculous stage parlor tricks that are often employed to dupe the population one way or another. And that's all they are. They're just a handful of tricks that have been employed and continue to be employed time and time again, because they are effective and they have been effective. But as I've also said, the task of the independent media for the past couple of decades has been to take that wand, that magic wand that they they keep up their sleeve and snap it in the public's face and show them the broken wand. This is a trick that they are playing on you. That's exactly what the the sort of introduction to the general uh, consciousness of the concept of false flag terrorism. I remember two decades ago, that idea was incomprehensible to the average person. Why would the government attack itself? That's that's silly. That makes no sense. At the very least, we've arrived at the point where not only does that concept actually make sense, oh, they, you know, they're pretending that they're being attacked by an enemy in order to get the powers to, to fight back. Oh, I see. Not only does that make more sense to the average person, not only has that started finding its way into the headlines. I remember that one of the first headlines I saw about the Boston Marathon bombing was from Yahoo News. Was the Boston Marathon bombing a false flag? I mean, that that 
headline would have been unthinkable even a few years before that point. But now we've got the U.S. State Department coming out in State Department briefings talking about how Russia is going to stage a false flag in order to invade Ukraine. Again, this is just completely normalized because the trick has been exposed. And once the trick's, trick is exposed, it's it's useless. They cannot perform that trick in the same way. So our our task is in one sense, very simple, and in one sense, almost this unsurmountable hurdle of just trying to get people to see that they have been tricked. And uh, that sounds easy, but actually it's a lot harder than uh, than it might sound, because what's the old Mark Twain quote? Um, uh, it's uh, difficult to make, um, it's easier to fool people than to convince them that they've been fooled. I also feel just a lot of people want to be fooled. You know, they're just, it's easier. It's like, oh, I could just put my head back in my phone and yeah go back to my, you know, everyday existence and worry about the little things and not have to worry about the bigger things. Because if there's not a hero, you know, then what, mm. you know, I, then I have to do something. And that's yeah. kind of like, that's true. That, right? uh, but realistically, I think we shouldn't be under any delusion that it's ever been anything different. Um, I mean, oh, there's the, they always quote the figures that I think are probably off the top of their head about the American Revolution. It was 3% of the population that really swayed the revolution, things like this. I, I think there's always a tiny percentage of the population that is truly activated, truly on the playing field. The vast majority of people are NPCs, to use the current terminology, but people who just go along to get along. And it, it's easy to get dismissive uh, of those people or to be sort of smug about it. Oh, these these normies, uh, you know, they, they just go with whatever's whatever they're seeing on the news. In a certain sense, I don't begrudge them that that uh, why why should it be incumbent upon us to be constantly striving, constantly working uphill, constantly Sisyphus rolling the rock uphill over and over and over and constantly on the lookout for all these deceptions? Shouldn't we? I mean, what's the point of life? Is it to simply fight against this overwhelming force that's going against us? Or is it to actually enjoy the time that we have with people that we love? I don't begrudge people wanting to do that and just turning their minds off and going going along. I at least understand from their perspective what it's doing. And I think, hey, you know what? There are there are that few percentage of people who are genuinely motivated by this stuff and do want to fight and do engage in this struggle. So maybe they can be the protectors of the vast masses of people who just want to go along with their life and just get along. And I'm not going to judge that um, the people who ultimately decide one way or another on that, that's for them and that's on their conscience if they even realize that they're in that struggle. But all that to say, I think there's only a few percentage point of the public who are ever really engaged in this one way or the other. Yeah, agreed. And and I honestly, my philosophy is withdrawing your attention, not giving it further, because like you said, that Sisyphus, you know, that futile go to the school board, you know, try to, I mean, it's so, so many of our institutions, and I know you're not in the United States, so I can only speak to that. But so many of our institutions are so inherently corrupt at this point, they've just so been so fully infiltrated that I mean, you can sit and you can fight. I was actually doing that for a while and I just saw the futility of it. You know, you get your head patted and they say, okay, we won't do that. And then you're not looking and they're doing it anyway. So yeah. um, vote harder guys. Yeah. Like withdrawing your attention and putting your attention towards what you actually want to see what being that change yourself is what makes more of the difference. And, you know, like you said, even in the past 3%, of folks, I, I think the challenge though, a little bit different now with everything with the web and social media and everything else mm. is just getting that attention. It's so hard to get. There's such a, it's just, everyone wants everyone's attention everywhere we go. We're just, you know, people want to barrage you with different messages and things. So people have just kind of shut off to the point, I think, where apathy reigns because they're just exhausted. Yeah. Yeah. That's such an incredibly important point that a lot of people do not spend enough time, I think, thinking about. I did a, uh, a course last year, an online course about the history of mass media and what that means for the development of essentially the human species, ultimately. Um, and I will be releasing that um, in various permutations over the course of the coming months, because this is, I think, one of the most fundamental issues that we face as, as the human species right now is the fact that people don't think about it, but so much, I would venture to say, depending on the person, upwards of 90, 95% of their entire experience is now being lived in mediated experience. It is through screens. It is through 
I mean, at best books or something along those lines, but more often than not screens or maybe radios or what have you. But all of this mediated information we are being steeped in every single day has undoubtedly shaped the course of human society in profound, profoundly important ways. But it's getting even more dire as we, at, at the very least, that mediated experience reality is always something out there that we've put ourselves into by reading the book, by look, turning on the radio, by turning on the computer. But we are now getting to the point where, no, now we're literally going to put ourselves inside that mediated reality and live inside that experience. Meta, it's the matrix, guys. What could go wrong? Um, th the idea of a completely mediated synthetic reality like that is, I think, truly the death knell for humanity itself, or what we have known as humanity. We will lose our humanity if and when we do strap on the goggles and really put ourselves into the matrix. And I think not a lot of people are thinking about that and how fundamentally powerful that is as a tool of control for people who do understand just how important media is in controlling the masses. Yeah, well, you mean you're not buying a house next to a Snoop Dogg in the metaverse, James? <laughs> I, I, I is that true is that real i, I don't know <laughs> you can do that yes you can do oh, that oh yay does anything surprise you anymore no um, speaking of which i kind of wanted to shift a little bit to cryptocurrency i know you've spoken about this before but i'd love to get your take on this because this is another i feel like white knight you know oh well it doesn't matter if the dollar crashes i'm fully invested in crypto and you know, that's going to be my saving. And I'm like, well, if they turn off your internet or, you know, you're, you misbehave, I don't see how that's not good. That hasn't already been infiltrated, but um, yet there's a lot of financial whizzes out there who are still constantly touting crypto, crypto, crypto. This is the way out of this matrix of, you know, the fed and everything else. So I'd love to get your perspective on that. Right. Well, I, I think there's an exact parallel between the promise of the internet versus the reality of the internet, the promise of crypto versus the reality of crypto. So the promise of the internet is about decentralized communication, peer-to-peer, -peer, all of that. But of course, the reality as it has developed or as we've been thrust into over the past couple of decades specifically is this centralization on a few controlled platforms. Um, so essentially not using the internet itself, but using these services that are happen to be hosted on the internet, but are, are not actually functioning the way the internet should. In the exact same way, what crypto is at base versus what it's uh, essentially the public is using it as and for is completely disconnected. Um, now, most people will think crypto equals Bitcoin. And, uh, and uh, the only way to do that is to register with some kind of uh, exchange. And so you've got to give them your passport and your ID and your thumb scan and your blood sample and your next of kin, whatever. You got to give them all this information and then you just keep all your crypto on this exchange. And then the government comes along and says, well, that you can't, we're going to shut down that wallet on that exchange. So you can't get your crypto anymore because you were a bad person. And oh, well, people told me crypto was going to save me, but it didn't save me. What's going on? It's because that isn't what crypto is. Essentially, what you are doing is just signing up for a like a credit card or something else, a controlled thing on a controlled platform versus actual cryptocurrency, decentralized peer-to-peer -peer exchange that, yes, I mean, I guess if they shut down the entire internet, yeah, you absolutely would have, well, actually, theoretically, you could do a peer-to-peer -peer electronic exchange via paper. It would just be ridiculously difficult to do, but I mean, it's theoretically possible. But at any rate, yes, if they completely shut down the internet, yeah, there goes your crypto. But then again, if they completely shut down the entire internet for the rest of your life, I think you're going to be dealing with a lot of problems in your life, not just your crypto. So I think there's a lot of things to think about there. But I think the fundamental question is, are you using cryptocurrency as cryptocurrency in a crypto way? Or are you simply buying onto a controlled exchange that can be controlled by governments? Um, and unfortunately, I've talked about it many times. It's called the Bitcoin PSYOP. It's all of this stuff is kind of the same. Digital currency and cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, blockchain, CBDC, they're all the same thing. And whatever, oh, the government's giving me some kind of money in some kind of electronic wallet. It, this must be that Bitcoin I'm hearing about. I don't know, it's crypto. And, and then you just get completely uh, corralled into the most controlled system that has ever been 
devised for controlling humanity. Um, that's the real nightmare of all of this. And again, it really comes down to understanding and awareness. Whether or not people will bother to spend the time and energy and mental effort to actually inform themselves of these things and how they can, can operate, how they should operate, um, or whether they're just going to go along with the system, because we know ultimately where that leads. Yes. Um, with all the, I don't know, I feel like there's this impending doom, just like lingering. You hear it all the time, you know, famines and, you know, food shortages and, you know, Dr. Eva Plezis were going to, were very vulnerable to a cyber attack. Hmm, how did he get that intel? Um, you know, are you, are you, are you kind of taking this seriously? And if you are, are you, how are you preparing? Uh, I do take it seriously because I think that the, uh, there's a, the story that I've cited a number of times of Norman Dodd, who was a researcher on a congressional committee in the 1950s that was examining the question of the tax-exempt foundations and where they came from and how they operated and whether they were really serving the purpose that their boards supposedly say that they're serving, etc. And the story that Norman Dodd had is that they were granted access to the Carnegie Endowment's records from the time of the inception of the Car Carnegie Endowment in, I believe, 1908. The story is fuzzy and the dates I don't think exactly lined up when I tried to research them. And I'm sure there was, I mean, he was speaking extemporaneously off, off the cuff. So maybe he didn't have his notes in front of him. I don't know. There's some questions I have about this story. But anyway, the story is this researcher went into it and was reading the board meeting minutes and discovered that from its very inception, the Carnegie Endowment Board was meeting and talking about the best way to influence society. How can we change society towards the ends that we want to achieve? And after a year of very learned and scholarly discussion, they discovered that the best way to change society is through war steep society in a war and you can institute all sorts of changes. And keep in mind, this was in the late 1900s, uh, 1900s into the 1910s. And uh, so after deciding this, they set about the task of trying to control the foreign policy of the United States and started trying to get control of the U.S. State Department. And fast forward to 1916, 17, and the U.S. is engaged in World War One. And uh, he was trying to paint that picture that this was part of a actual strategy for transformation of society. Now, again, I can't verify all of the details of that. That was the story of this researcher at any rate, but it does, there is a logic to it for, for sure that crisis does create the chaos, which begs for order and ordo ab KO, I mean, these are very, very old concepts that have been um, handed down for centuries in the mystic schools, let alone in the intelligence agencies that grew out of those occult um, uh, membership organizations. So uh, I, again, I can't speak to the ver veracity of that story, but I can speak to the, the veracity of the logic of that story. If you want to completely change society, well, warfare is a very good way of bringing out chaos. But really, I think the fundamental point is chaos. As long as you can generate some sort of crisis, some sort of emergency, something that begs for or someone to come in and solve the problem, then if you have already sorted out what your preconceived solution is, you can be there to, to provide it. Hey, guys, oh, look at this chaos. Well, here is the solution. And it will always be in line with what you already planned it to be. I think that is the fundamental operating system for the, uh, the people who want to control society generally. And as a result, I think that using emergency and crisis and causing emergencies and crises in order to generate the type of reaction that you want from the people in order to give them what you were planning to give them anyway, is exactly how this operates on the big sort of meta level. Um, now, as a result, as I uh, I had a, a, a podcast earlier this year on states of emergency talking about the concept of the new governance paradigm for the planet of the 21st century is essentially emergency, constant emergency. From 9-11 onwards, there's always been some sort of pressing, pending life-threatening existential emergency of some sort or other. And the answer that is always provided to the public for this, uh, to that crisis, is always more government control. The formation of the Department of Homeland Security and the, the TSA, or whether it's uh, the, the the takeover of the uh, the financial system in, in the name of saving us from the, the 2008 financial crisis and, you know, the, the bailout of AIG and all and things like that, or whether now we're in the 
COVID era. So of course it's biosecurity. Well, the government has to come in and give the life-saving mRNA shots to everyone or in the Ukraine crisis. Well, now we're going to have to switch off the gas and live like medieval peasants in order to stick it to Putin, right? Um, there's always, in the end, the solutions that they are providing for all of these crises are always the things that they were going to do anyway. But now they, now you've got a reason to be on board with them. So I think, um, yes, it is kind of ridiculous when you look at just crisis after crisis and, oh my God, this is coming and this is coming, food shortage, and there's going to be famine and there's going to be problems here and there's going to be problems there. Um, but I would love to just dismiss that as fear mongering. But unfortunately, I know that the people who want to manipulate and engineer society, if to the extent that they can, will either cause or aggravate or play up crises as they come, because it actually fits in with their, their ultimate agenda. So there are real problems. But I would say that the vast majority of these problems, see, the solution they always, always, always want to provide for these problems is the solution of essentially failing forward. Oh, there was this catastrophic, horrible terror attack out of nowhere that the intelligence agencies didn't see, and oh, it, it caught us off guard. So what we need to do is give the intelligence agencies more money and more power and give them more control over the population so that they can make sure they get the next one. And oh no, there's another one. Okay, now we need to give them more money and more power and more control. Oh no, they can continue doing that indefinitely because the the logic that they have provided the public is when there's a problem, you just gotta give them more money, more power, right? Oh, this, this government is failing. We better empower the government more. Oh, well, that's not working. Let's do a global government. So, the real answer then, the real answer to these this never-ending string of crises is to go in the exact opposite direction, of course. No, not centralization of power, not giving more power and money to the people who are so self-evidently failing to provide the security that they uh, pur purport to provide, but going in the opposite direction. No, we have to take that responsibility onto ourselves to organize in communities of interest that are capable of providing for each other. And it will absolutely not look like the world that we are used to and are living in at the moment because we are so used to relying on that centralization of power and control that it's almost impossible for us to even imagine what a decentralized system would look like. But I, I think that's the real direction that we need to be taking this so that when the crisis, whatever the crisis of the moment, when that happens, we are already prepared. It doesn't we are only vulnerable to the extent that we are wedded to this system of overall control that uh, we, I mean, of course we get our food from the supermarket. How else do you get food? Where else could food possibly come from? It comes from the supermarket. And if you go to the supermarket and it's not there, the shelves are empty, then you're stuck. Then you just got to wait for the government to deliver it to you. And oh, by the way, oh, you know, there's a social credit system now. And if you're not a good citizen and take all your shots and do everything we say, then you're not going to get your food. So, OK, I guess we got to do it um, unless you already had a system in place for dealing with such an emergency. You already had a community that was able to support each other and provide um, that. I, the logic is quite obvious when you lay it out for people like that. But unfortunately, again, it equates to work and effort. It's a lot of effort to try to create a community that can actually support itself and be self-sustaining. It's very easy to rely on these big structures of control. So once again, we are in that situation of pushing the rock up the hill. Well, yeah. And, and I guess if you think about it, you're so enslaved to the system too. This is the, this is a big issue. When you tell most people, well, we got to start doing our own thing. I don't have time for that. You know, I have a mortgage, yeah. I have credit cards and I'm not, you know, saying they're not to blame for whatever they may have, you know, with the financial mismanagement or whatever, but we're so indebted to the system, which I also think is totally by design, you know, lending out imaginary money and charging interest on it yeah. <laughs> with the fed and, and everything yeah. else. So it, it is hard for us to envision. It is the catch 22 because essentially people are on this treadmill that's going 50 miles an hour and they're running as fast as they can just to stay up with this treadmill. And then you're telling them, no, you got to get on this other treadmill and it's not quite up to speed yet. We've got it going at, uh, you know, half a mile an hour. So you're going to have to jump off of this 50 mile an hour treadmill and land on the half a mile treadmill and, and still maintain everything and not, you know, and then you're going to be way behind everyone else. But don't worry, guys, in, you know, a few generations, this will be this will be a good thing. It's a pretty hard sell, isn't it? Which is why for for in my mind, you can talk till you're blue in the face about all of this. But until you can actually show and provide an example 
of some thriving community, people aren't going to take it seriously. So it's it's the catch-22. You have to have it already set up and functioning before people will want to join it. Yeah. And I do also think that you know everything else falls into place from there. So once you start becoming more independent, I mean, geez, most people don't even know what real food is anyway. So they'll be like, how do I get my Oreos? How do I get my, <laughs> how do I get my <laughs> processed packaged food? Um, you know, that's food. Uh, and, and that's not to be condescending or me. It's just, it's, I think it's actually true in this day and age. Um, so, you know, I think once you get to that point, then the critical thinking starts to kick in, which is where, you know, forefathers and people like that, they already had this kind of, you know, in, ingrained indignation towards people trying to control them all the time. And maybe it was more overt because you had monarchies and things like that, where here it's a little more subtle. They just moved into bankers and politicians. But, you know, it, it is a, it's a tough sell. And, and I keep thinking to myself, geez, I want to make more of an impact. But what is the linchpin? I think you've kind of already answered that question. But, you know, we're all looking for that solution. Like you have to get to the root of the problem, not the symptoms, which I feel like we're still in the phase where we're still focusing on the symptoms. Mm. Oh, you see these crooked politicians. Oh, you see the Fed. Oh, you see this. Oh, you see that. All the corruption, you know, but that's not really the root of the problem. It's just the symptom of us handing over our minds, yeah. handing over our freedoms um, to people like here, you run the show. I'll just, you know, I'll put yeah. my, my share in the till, take the taxes out and leave me alone. You know, so it's, it's, it's challenging. And I do wonder, you know, do you it is that? challenging. And I guess there are a couple of ways to confront this because if we go back in history to some time when there was something approaching a more self-sustaining local economy sort of mindset, we could go back to pre-industrial revolution, where you had actual craftsmen and tradesmen living in their little communities, uh, supporting each other, and you had the blacksmith and the baker and the what have you, and they all traded together, and they could essentially live as without very much output from the inside, uh, input from the outside world. Um, but are we going to go back to that? And uh, that sort of lifestyle where you'd you didn't have to be a jack of all trades, but you did have to know quite a bit about and try to do a little bit of everything. And you were probably growing some of your own fruit food as well as knowing how to, you know, make certain crafts or to do certain services. And you had to be a number of different things. And it wasn't, I mean, it, it certainly wasn't as efficient as the cold-blooded efficiency of the Industrial Revolution age. So do we go back to that sort of lifestyle or do we try to um, create the 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 incredible benefits of a division of labor within these new communities of interest. And I am a big believer in the idea that, yes, I, I mean, certainly when you're talking about fully formed adults who are already on a certain path in life, it's going to be extremely difficult to get them into a, a completely different mindset where, okay, you're going to provide everything for yourself. That seems unlikely. But uh, at any rate, most people, by the time they are fully formed adults, do understand, okay, I have these abilities and I'm good at this and doing this. And I'm a big believer in the idea that everyone has certain abilities and talents and skills that could be useful in, in a situation. And rather than trying to make people into these parts that can be slotted into some sort of community that's already preformed or trying to make people so that they can do everything trying to use the natural skills and abilities and talents that people have to to sort of contribute to a greater whole, I think is is the ideal. Um, and so for myself, I, communication is what I do. It's what I've always been interested in. It's so it's what I ended up doing. And now I here I am as a podcaster sitting in Japan talking to tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands, occasionally millions of people around the world getting a message out there. That's what I do. But it would be it would be stupid and naive of me to say to everyone, now everyone else should become a podcaster and everyone should start doing this. No, of course not. Some people, I'm sure, would be better at it than I am. Some people would not be good at it at all. Do what you can with the talents, abilities, and resources that you have and take it from there rather than trying to slot into some sort of you know ideal system that's been constructed for you. That's social engineering kind of stuff. I think we just have to deal with what we have and the, the, the things that we have at our disposal. Yeah, and I think if freedom of thought and expression were <laughs> much more popular, people would gravitate to the communities that resonate the most. So mm -hmm. I think we're just from birth, mm -hmm. from cradle to grave, we've been so stifled. Like, you know, you can't be an artist. You can't do You got to have a desk job or you have to be a plumber or you have to be a lawyer or a doctor. Right, yeah. you know? So 
context. So we well now Elon Musk has saved free speech. I'm sure we can have that conversation. I keep forgetting that. Thank you. (laughs) I mean, you're right. That's it. Game over. We're good now. We can just stop this. You can just stop this interview right now. (laughs) Um, My other question to you. I mean, being in media and you know espousing certain philosophies, and you've done the research, and what is truth to you? That should be the absolute simplest question of all. And yet, in some ways, it's the most difficult, certainly in an abstract sense. Um, because, I, you know, I, what can I say? Truth is two plus two equals four. Um, truth is that which is observable reality. Five. Okay, well, Five. I guess so. That's true. But then again, as I just said, 90, 95, 99% of the information we get is coming mediated. Um, I, I've never even been to Ukraine let alone see what is happening on the ground in Ukraine right now. So how am I going to know the truth of the situation in Ukraine? And then again, it's 13 ways of looking at a blackbird. Which perspective, from which person, from whose experience, from whose point of view is the truth? And 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 it's something that you really think about when you do things like I've, I've done documentaries trying to put together an historical sort of perspective on this this century or this you know the developments in this certain field and you're keenly aware that yes there are many different ways that you can tell this story and some of them will come with completely different embedded assumptions and will end up in a different place and will have a different theme and so i'm i'm constructing this from these constituent parts of the sort of the truth that I have. Well, I I know that this happened and I know that this person said that, and I know that this thing happened on such and such a date, but how do you string those things together? And then what story results from that? Um, It's an incredibly difficult thing. So there is observable, objective, identifiable truth. I am not some sort of, you know, epistemological pessimist in that sense. We can't know anything, but I am keenly aware of narrative and the role that narrative plays in developing our overall sense of truth, capital T in the big picture, which is why I spent um, some time at the end of last year talking about writing a new narrative as one of the solutions, um, perhaps the solution in a sense to the problems that we're facing. Because exactly as I was saying before, if, if the powers that shouldn't be can frame a crisis as being the crisis of, oh, there isn't enough power for these centralized oligarchs to rule over your life, then the logic of the narrative is such that, well, we have to give them more power. But if we take that on its in the exact opposite way, we could create a narrative, no, no, they have too much power over our lives, so we need to decentralize. And you have the exact same events that you're trying to look at, but you get com- two completely different conclusions um, from those events. So that's I mean, that's that's the the difficulty of this. Yes, there are certain identifiable objective truths in the world, but how do you put them together and what does that mean? Meaning is something that is constructed. And you can talk about the truth or falsity of various meanings that are taken from certain events. But uh, at any rate, you're coming at it from a more subjective point of view at that point. Yeah. And I think a lot of people are searching for that right now because there's so much from every every angle, alternative media, mainstream media, there's so many people, there's such an information war there. And there's a lot of agendas behind all that information that people want to accept as truth. Well, all of that is to say, I mean, we could have highfalutin philosophical conversations about this, but at the end of the day, I think I trust in people's ability to intuit and resonate with truth when they experience it, when they see it, and when they know it. And when somebody explains something to you in a way that hits you and you go, yes, that's it. And now I suddenly understand. And that makes sense of these other things that I've seen. That to me is at least closer to the truth. I don't know if we'll ever arrive at capital T absolute truth, but at any rate, we can get closer to it. And I think people understand it when someone provides them something that's genuinely explanatory, that genuinely makes sense of things that are happening around them versus the propaganda, which is, I mean, it's an incredible industry. A uh, multi, multi, multi-billion dollar industry of advertising and propaganda and things that are meant to try to sell you on certain ideas. But the interesting part about that is they have to try very hard and they have to continue to repeat it and try to control every source of information that you have and you know the media oligopoly and all of this in order to try to control your mind because it's very, very hard to sell a lie. 
to sell you something that isn't truly explanatory, doesn't really make sense, isn't really quite right. And we all understand that. And that's why they have to continue to drum it into us so that we can't even think outside of that box. And then someone comes along with the truth and you can tumble down the rabbit hole in an instant. This is true. What is your overarching goal for your the work you put out and the research you do? Like kind of what do you always come back to? Kind of like your mission statement, so to speak. Uh, there are there are multiple missions, I suppose. And uh, the most self-serving one is that I would be doing this type of research anyway, but just out of genuine curiosity. I just want to know how the world works. So I would be doing this anyway. Hey, it's good that people will support me and so that I can do this for a living. That's that's really great, right? So from a self-serving point of view, that's, that's sort of one thing that motivates me. Um, but obviously there is some sort of evangelical, if you want to put it that way, some sort of mission of, hey guys, this is very important. This is These are some things that I've learned about the world that I think really explain things and really help to uh, understand and paint the picture of where we're going. And that's not a very pretty picture if we continue along this path. I think we, so there's some sort of motivation there in terms of the genuine belief that I genuinely still have, that as I say, when you present the truth to people in a way that makes sense to them, they can understand it and they will change their lives. Uh, as a result of that information. And I get that feedback on a regular basis. I get emails from people all the time. Hey man, I started listening to your podcast a, a year or two ago and now I, 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 I'm completely changed the way that I'm living and I'm, I'm off of this, you know, the industrial food system and I'm trying to grow more on my own and I'm uh, finding my farmer's markets and things like this. I get that kind of feedback from people. That to me is the most satisfying by far um, because that's ultimately what this is about. I genuinely think that we can change the world. We can change the path that we're on. I'm not in any way um, naive about how easy that is going to be. It's going to be an incredibly difficult thing, but I really do think it can be done. And if I, as this guy in Japan sitting in the living room, talking to a screen, can have that kind of influence, then it's to me, it's, it's not about me. It's about the ripple effect. Hopefully I can influence someone who can then influence someone else who can influence someone else until you get the much larger thing that you could never in a million years calculate how, how this societal change took place. But um, all I know is I'm trying to put out as much as I can to try to, to, to get that going and to get people starting to think in a different way. And hey, I, I've had some success with some people and uh, I'm just going to have to leave, put it out there and leave people to, to do with it as they will with this information. Yeah, I, I did hear you say that, you know, someone asked how they should introduce you. And you said at the heart of it, you're a teacher, you know, above and above everything, you consider yourself to be a teacher. <laughs> it's funny, because I just got an email a couple of hours ago from someone who was complaining and criticizing and saying, you you talk as if you're a teacher, and you're just going to put people in that teacher student mindset, you should not talk like that. <laughs> The funniest thing okay, is, if you don't like no. it, you can always just shut it off, right? That's what's kind of funny to me. Exactly right. I don't know. To me, I, I, it's funny. Some of the feedback I get is very funny. It's like going to a a steak restaurant and complaining that uh, you don't you don't sell pet supplies here, but we're a steak restaurant. It's not what we do. <laughs> well, I want pet supplies. <laughs> okay, I'll let you know if we ever become a pet supply store. I mean, it's it's that kind of <laughs> feedback I get sometimes. That I just. <laughs> <laughs> At any rate, it doesn't have much of an effect on what I do. <laughs> okay, and I, I want to be respectful of your time. We have a few minutes left, but what is your vision for for the world? Like, if we change it, I feel like that's one of the major. And you kind of touched on this already, saying like, you know, you already have to have a plan in place for when things do implode or things, you know, kind of erode. You, have, you should have something in place already. And I feel like we don't like on mass. I would say we mm. don't have that mindset because I, I feel like. It is scary to change, even though it's kind of a slave system. It's all we've ever kind of known, you know, like what's our vision mm. beyond. Yeah. And that's something that I, I think about all the time. I'm like, wow, yeah. well, if you can't present something, an alternative, mm. a new vision, how do you expect people to get on board with changing what's the yeah. current state of the state is? So I'm curious, like, what's your vision? So if you see, like, say things crumble, we have to start from scratch or, or how can we turn the ship around to a really sustainable point where we've really changed, where there's true freedom, you know, people are prosperous. There's not such a, you know, chasm between the haves and have nots and, and, you know, that kind of thing. I'll stop talking now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I get what you're saying. And it, it I, I guess I always do. I'm 
keenly aware that my answer to this question is not satisfying for a lot of people because it doesn't sound like what they want. They want, okay, here's the plan. And the world is going to look like this and this and this, and we'll have this in place and this structure, and it'll work this way. But my my real vision, and this isn't a cop-out, this is my actual answer, is the exact opposite of that. Here's the itemized list of the ways that the world will work in the future, because freedom means the freedom to have many, 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 many different types of community working in different ways, sometimes at cross purposes. That means that sometimes there will be conflict. I don't think there will be a vision of a humanity that looks like humanity in which there will never be conflict and everyone will always be in court. I don't see that happening unless and until you remove the things that make humans humans. Maybe when we all have the brain chips and people can be you know, programmed from a distance, maybe then we will have that kind of world harmony and everyone will be working towards a singular plan. But I don't want that future. I want the future of freedom and very many different types of communities operating in different ways. That means even I would allow as dictator of the world, I would allow people to have the freedom to set up communities that I wouldn't want to participate in. So look, I'm no huge fan of the representative democracy that is venerated in our era as the ultimate way of ordering society, but many people do like that. And I imagine if you were to flip the freedom switch right now, overnight, okay, everybody, you're free to do what you want. Most people probably would gravitate towards some sort of system like that, because maybe because it's what they've ever known, maybe because they genuinely enjoy it. Yay, I like putting my suggestion in the slave voting box every four years and getting whatever happens to come out. Okay, well, I, personally, I'm not going to opt to live in that society. But if you want to, then okay, as long as it's the voluntary association of people who agree to that system, I'm not going to, I wouldn't presume to have the authority to come in and stop people from associating in that way. So my ultimate vision of the world is many, many different communities. And I always am at pains to say that uh, it's not a question of competition between those communities. Like this one will ultimately come out on top and will, and everyone will convert to that or something. No, I think the, the actual diversity of communities of different people operating in different ways is actually the system, the, the sort of overall system. Um, because my my vision of the way that I want to live my life, I don't know you, Karen, so I will not make this about you, but I'm going to guess that it's probably going to be different than your vision in some ways, in some respects. The way that I want to live my life is going to be different than the way you want to live your life. Fine, that's great. Go form the community with the people who want to live in the way that you want to live and thrive that way and you know, live long and prosper, you know, have, have at it. And I'm going to find the community of people who want to live in the way that I want to live. And let's do it that way. So that, again, it's not a satisfying answer to people who have been trained to expect that they, there's going to be the plan and every, this is the system and this is how the system will work. I cannot, I, I would not offer such a, a system because that is exactly what I am trying to move away from. It's funny. The first thing that came to my mind was Chaz. Mm. <laughs> If you want to live in Chaz, go live in Chaz. Exactly. Yeah. Whatever you want to if, do. <laughs> if people voluntarily consent to it and they actually have ownership of the property that they're taking. But then again, that becomes a contentious <laughs> issue anyway. Episode. I don't know. It just came yeah. to mind and made me laugh. Yeah. But, um, thank but you it's, so a good, it's a good example of the <laughs> sort like, of the okay. many different people operating in many different ways. And you saw how that kind of imploded, actually. It was yeah. given this freedom, this summer of love, and it just turned to complete and utter chaos. They, yeah. they all turned on each other. It was just such a nightmare. Another um, good so example of the, something that I've pointed out many times, by the way, that um, I, if I had the, the magical switch to flip the world over to anarchy overnight, I absolutely would not flip it because I think it would dissolve into the kind of chaos that people associate with anarchy because we are steeped in this complete system of centralized control. That's all we've ever known. We've been grown, we've grown up in it. We cannot, we would not be able to deal with being flipped into freedom overnight. People would go crazy. It has to be a generational process of coming to an understanding of what freedom is and the responsibilities that come with it. And then the, the real devil of the details is in the transition from the controlled centralized system to the free decentralized system. I can imagine both endpoints, but the transition in the middle, there's a million different ways to accomplish that and a million different ways that that could go horribly wrong. So again, I'm not, I'm not naive about the fact that this is not an easy thing that we're, we're talking about here. 
Yeah. I think in a perfect world, if we were already, which I already touched on, um, used to actually expressing ourselves and knowing ourselves, mm-hmm. it would yeah. be an easier thing, but we've not, you know, from cradle to grave, we've always been told we have to do this. We have to do that. And yeah. this equals success and this equals failure. And, mm-hmm. you know, the, so it's like, setting someone free it's like well when you've been so enslaved to not only you know institutions but ideologies is can be very challenging Mm -hmm. to then to be like well well, who even am i much less you know what do i want to do with myself so you can imagine if you were been living in plato's cave all your life and somebody told you about the outside world you'd want to continue living in the cave that sounds scary i don't understand that i understand this (laughs) Exactly. But I am very grateful that we have free thinkers like you who are, you know, able to, or freely accessible. We can get the information that you provide. And, you know, I, I think you're wonderful. And I'm really so honored to for you to give your time and, you know, let, let me discuss these topics with you. Um, what are you working on now? Just in closing, what, what, what's coming up? What, what can we look at? As- as I mentioned, I am now working on taking that course on the history of online media and, or mass media and trying to uh, put that in a form that will uh, hopefully resonate with people and hopefully make sense given what I'm talking about. Given that the medium is the message, as Marshall McLuhan said, how do you make a documentary about media that makes people sort of think about what media is and how it operates. So I'm trying to take this in sort of a different direction than I do with a lot of my work, which is why, as people might have noticed, uh, if they do, if they know my work and have followed my work, I have often been putting out three, four, five videos a week and articles and interviews and podcasts and things. Uh, I am drastically scaling that back right now because I'm putting my time and attention into this sort of longer term project and some other longer term projects that I have going on. So that's kind of what's eating up my my brain space these days and consuming my time. Yeah, I did notice this that on your site that you're taking a break or, you know, you're kind of working on other things. Where can people yeah. find you? CorbettReport.com, C-O-R-B-E-T-T report.com. That's the best place I do. I am on other social media platforms, video platforms and what have you, but go to CorbettReport.com, bookmark it, RSS feeds. There's an email list. Um, I'm on Substack, so you could subscribe through the email on Substack, but don't do that. Don't go on other platforms to try to get at me because they will ultimately be censored one one way or another. Um, and then, of course, my Twitter handle is... Oh, uh, <laughs> now that the world's been saved, I mean, you got to get a Twitter account. <laughs> Well, um, that's, I, you know, like I said, I, I want to be considerate of your time. Anything else that you want to share with the audience? I think that'll do it for today. Um, but thank you for having me on. Um, these conversations, I genuinely believe, are important. And uh, every time we have a conversation like this, someone will hear it that hasn't heard this message before. And I think that's a win. So thank you. I agree wholeheartedly. Thank you so much. You have a great night and we'll talk soon, I hope. All right. Take Bye. care. Bye-bye.